Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hi, my name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that addresses a range of issues of significance around the world. Today's topic is the coronavirus pandemic in historical perspective. We're fortunate to have with us today, Professor Mary Wabel, who is Assistant Professor of History at the University of Pittsburgh, specializing in modern African history and the histories of public health, healing, and medicine. She received her PhD in history from Columbia University and currently holds a New Directions Fellowship from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation to pursue training in public health. She's the author in 2019 of The Politics of Disease Control, Sleeping Sickness in Eastern Africa, 1890-1920. Her current research focuses on the history of the so-called neglected tropical diseases uh, as a category in global health since the 1970s. Thank you for joining us today, Professor Wabel. Thanks very much. I'm very glad to be with you. Looking forward to this discussion. So let's just start right in. Uh, I think the first question really to be asked here is, You know, it's often said that the situation we're in with the coronavirus pandemic is unprecedented. That's a word that historians tend not to like. But I'd like to ask you to uh, put the coronavirus pandemic in historical perspective. How would you compare the current situation to other epidemics in the past? So you're right that um, that historians do like to use unprecedented very cautiously. Um, I think that the the current situation is certainly um, it's certainly unprecedented within our lifetimes and recent memory of most of our family members, and so it's apt in the sense that that we are really dealing with something entirely novel in terms of the the virus and its biology, but also um, in a world that is different than the world of the last pandemic that was significant um, globally. The um, the, there are a few points of comparison that we um, we often hear with regard to this current situation. One is the uh, 
the so-called Spanish influenza, um, which was an H1N1 influenza that followed at the end of World War I in 1918, 1919. Um, that pandemic, that influenza pandemic, um, saw dramatic and really devastating mortality globally on a scale of which we haven't really seen in the modern world or known about in the modern world. So um, estimated mortality in the United States from that pandemic was around 675,000 people. And globally, um, bottom uh, estimates or 30 million upper estimates or sort of reasonable estimates around 50 million people died in the in the year and a half of that pandemic. So points of comparison for, for the current coronavirus for COVID-19 um, in terms of its global reach, certainly we see global reach with influenza pandemics and we've seen global reach with with other infectious diseases, but um, but mortality in 1918-1919 was really was really truly unprecedented in that moment. Now, some people will, will push further back to thinking about um, the cholera pandemics in the 19th century, which were fueled by new technologies and, and global trade. Um, we don't really have. Uh, reliable figures for morbidity and mortality for those pandemics in the 19th century, but they were really new in the sense that they catalyzed new kinds of international cooperation, but also really uh, drove home how interconnected the world was by rail and um, and steamship travel. And then some will go even further back. And one of the things that was really fascinating for me as a historian was that um, people were really uh, seemed very eager to throw around comparisons to the Black Death when this was first popping out um, and really coming into the public consciousness. And, um, and at a very basic level, the mortality rates for bubonic plague are dramatically different than anything we, we would see with this, COVID, um, with this COVID infection. So, you know, you have mortality rates for bubonic plague that range around 1 in 10, um, and th- those can be even higher with different forms of the plague infection. Um, with that, comparing that to, say, the influenza in 1918-1919 or our, our very rough estimates of mortality in the present day, there's a real disproportionality, right? So bubonic plague was really a significant and singular event in human history. We're not approaching anything like that. Um, so, um, so I think one of the, the, there are kind of a couple of ways to think about comparison in this context. And one is to think about what do we know about the way that this disease might kill people, um, and how it sickens people and how widespread is it? That's sort of one level of comparison, which takes us to think about global diseases. But then there's another way of thinking about it in terms of what are our reference points for, for experiencing this? How do we understand it? And in that sense, I think that um, some of the most meaningful reference points for most people who are dealing with this are the SARS outbreak in 2002-2003. But also, um, I have seen some real commonalities between the rhetoric around this disease and that around uh, the outbreaks of Ebola virus disease in Western Africa in 2014-2015 even though they're really different viruses, really different paths of transmission, some of the same kinds of stereotypes and same kinds of kind of touchstones have been employed with this as with Ebola, which is a really interesting phenomenon for me as a historian. So, um, I mean, you say that uh, people are tending to uh, compare this partially Mm -hmm. because of the nature of the virus with Mm -hmm. SARS in particular, but also with Ebola. Uh, but that's kind of in terms of the ways in which they're stigmatizing 
uh, in the Ebola case, I guess the mm-hmm. you know the origins of the disease is coming from places and people that you know you can stigmatize. But I, I wonder whether um, the comparison with the 1918 uh, 1919 um, H1N1 flu uh, pandemic mm-hmm. isn't somewhat more. I, I mean, it's something that we have tended, I think, in our history to sort of ignore. Uh, And given the enormity of what happened, I mean, you say that the estimates run from roughly 30 million to uh, 50 million worldwide. Uh, That was at a time when global population was one fourth of what it is now. So, so to make it comparable, you'd have to say it was something in the neighborhood of 120 million to uh, 200 million cases, uh, deaths, uh, you know, with our current population level. Um, So on the one hand, the the numbers seem not to be anywhere near uh, those kind of numbers, the, the numbers in the current situation. And yet the response has been uh, kind of enormous in terms of uh, the public health. And that's one reason that the numbers you say, you know, seem very unlikely to climb to the kind of numbers that we saw in 1918-19. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, the public health response to this situation and, you know, what are the determinants of that? Yeah, the the historical comparison with 1918-1919, I think, um, as you said, it really it really is one of the ones that we keep going back to. In part because um, influenza is a is a respiratory disease, and it has um, it has similar it has commonalities to coronaviruses in terms of the the mode of transmission um, and how people contract it. It's dramatically different than coronaviruses in terms of its its biology as a virus, um, which is outside of my uh, my wheelhouse, but something that I'm trying to become more conversant in, obviously. Um, and I think one of the things that that we so one important difference, let me start with an important difference, and then I'll talk a little bit more about those similarities. One important difference between um, the the 1918-1919 pandemic and the situation that we're seeing currently is the, the global situation at the time. So one of the factors that we really understand uh, exacerbated the spread of influenza in the fall of 1918 and into 1919 was the movement of troops globally for World War I. So that's both the movement of troops from training areas out into theaters of war and then the return of soldiers from theaters of war back to their homelands um, and, and sort of trick those soldiers trickling back into um, the places that they were from. That mobility, um, which was... Uh, which was significant in terms of its numbers, brought people into contact in ways that that might not they might not have been in contact otherwise. So pooling a group of recruits and you know thousands of people in one place and gathering together from all around the world and then sending to another part of the world and then sending them back. Those are sorts of movements into the you know the sort of smallest rural villages that you can you can kind of imagine and farms and, and cities as well is it was really significant. One of the things that was also different in that time period that I think we we have to keep in mind as a point of comparison is that there was no international health um, institutional uh, apparatus that is comparable to what we are looking at today. 
there were international um, hygiene institutions um, that had been had been developed in the latter part of the 19th century and sort of formalized in the early 20th century. But the level of international coordination that we think of as characterizing a kind of international health, so nations with um, with agreements with one another, but then also uh, a kind of coordinating organization didn't exist in that moment. Um, it wasn't until the League of Nations Health Organization was founded in the aftermath of the war that we, and, and, it, and the League of Nations was Health Organization was founded in part because of the, the difficulties in responding to the influenza pandemic that, w- that went into people's thinking at the time. So that was something that was dramatically different as well. Um, you know, and, and, and then we think about commonalities. Um, Public health responses in some ways were similar, and that's why we look at influenzas and responses to influenzas for for lessons for today. Um, We do not have a vaccine for COVID-19. We don't have um, uh, any uh, treatments that have really been proven to have a significant outcome on people's health once they're infected. And that's very similar to what the world was dealing with with influenza in 1918-1919, which was a situation where um, where the people who were were addressing this, physicians, uh, nurses, researchers, um, they couldn't yet see the virus. They didn't have the technology to 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 understand the pathogen in detail. They were treating symptoms. They were trying to prevent spread from what they could observe in their patient populations. And that's why the kinds of um, interventions that that uh, we're talking about today in parallel were so important. So the so-called non-pharmaceutical interventions, right? If a pharmaceutical intervention is a drug or a vaccine, a non-pharmaceutical intervention is wearing a mask or um, or staying home, closing social gatherings, right? Social, what we would call social distancing in the present day. Um, and so one of the, the public health responses that was really important, drawing in part from um, anti-tuberculosis campaigns, um, which were also looking at sort of managing people's coughs, coughing in public, not spitting in public, covering one's cough with a handkerchief, and, and those sorts of things. Those are some of the reference points um, for this major pandemic in that era that we are looking at in the, the modern era, um, in our current situation. But the other thread that connects those to us, those, those interventions in the past to us in the present day, are experiences with SARS in 2003, and then actually with the um, H1N1 influenza global pandemic in 2009, um, where we saw some of those same kinds of non-pharmaceutical interventions um, employed uh, in the same context, such as school closures um, and so forth, that we can really look at the outcomes of those and see that they're, they are useful in preventing respiratory epidemics like this one. So this raises some interesting questions about, you know, the history of public health. Mm-hmm. And I wonder whether you could talk a bit about the development of the whole idea of public health and the kind of consequences that it has had in terms of the kind of regulation of infectious disease in our parts of the world, in other parts of the world, um, and how that is perhaps influencing our reaction, our response to, uh, to the coronavirus uh, disease. Certainly, yeah. I mean, one of the things I think that is um, that is becoming really clear about public health and in, in, in current public health practices that it is it is fundamentally multidisciplinary, right? So we have 
Um, we have a lot of different kinds of expertise that are deployed to, to meet this, this issue, whether those are looking at behavioral and community health or epidemiology or thinking about um, hygiene and sanitation. And that's characteristic of, of public health in the modern era since, since the latter part of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century. And when we're thinking about the history of public health, um, and one of the things as an Africanist um, that I think is really, is really important to remember here is that in human history, over time, communities and societies have found ways to manage the spread of disease within the, the sort of therapeutic and intellectual worlds in which they lived. So regardless of whether germ theory was fully, uh, was, had been developed yet, which didn't happen until the late 19th century, um, communities have been making efforts to try to prevent uh, diseases that they saw as spreading or, or sort of moving around from going from one person to another. Now, sometimes those were, um, those were efforts that involved um, spiritual interventions. Sometimes those were efforts that were spatial interventions, distancing sick people from well people, for instance, not eating certain kinds of foods and so forth. So, um, so public health has always built on an understanding of um, how diseases, how illness, how maladies spread from one individual to another or one community to another. And likewise, it's also really been embedded within uh, worldviews that connect environments and people, um, temperatures, humidity, um, sort of the, the animals that are around us to different kinds of health outcomes. So there's a, there's a long intellectual history and, and a sort of empir- history of empirical observation by human societies to try to figure these kinds of things out. And when we think of modern public health, we think of epidemiology, we think about um, germ-oriented interventions. And, and certainly that's something that is, that is playing into our, our sense of, of what has changed in the last hundred years and how we're responding with this in the current moment. Um, one of the things that you and I have talked about before was how we can understand the kind of long arc of thinking about public health um, and the, the outcomes that we see as positive outcomes, what those have resulted from. So is one of the reasons that COVID-19 is, is shocking the United States and, and, and sort of the general public so much is because they haven't really had to worry about dying from an infectious disease for, um, for some time, right? Um, or they're not as concerned with that. We see, um, and I would say that that's sort of on the one hand true, but on the other hand, a matter of, of perception and experience. So we see generally that in higher income nations, since the, um, since the early 19th century, actually, as standards of living improved, which means as we see people getting better nutrition, living in more improved housing, that there's, um, there are improvements in hygiene and sanitation, clean water, segregation of sewage from drinking water, and so forth, we start to see um, uh, child survival rates increasing and, and mortality rates decreasing sort of life expectancy increases and those sorts of shifts actually started to happen before we had vaccines and antibiotics because if people are healthier and if their sanitation is better they live longer fewer children die now the the main improvements that we think of as being modern medical breakthroughs so the development of vaccines for diseases that that killed children um, the the development of antibiotics now, those are really 20th century interventions in large part. So antibiotics don't become widely available until after the Second World War um, to most of the, of the global population. And even, even then, they're, they're spotty. Um, vaccines for, um, for measles really come online in the post-war era. 
um, those for diphtheria and pertussis are available before that. But um, but the polio vaccine, as we've been thinking about a lot lately, doesn't come doesn't become available until the the 1950s and 1960s. So so it's an interesting problem, I think, that we have uh, this sense that modern medical technologies have been this great improver in our in our general health status in wealthier nations when it has a lot to do with socioeconomic status and with broader improvements to standards of living um, now that's not to discount those the importance of vaccines and antibiotics and their availability to a wide population, but rather to say that um, that it's access to those kinds of goods that has been really important. And the other kind of corollary to this is that even in um, even in wealthier nations, we have still seen really spotty access um, and and inadequate access to um, to regular childhood vaccination, to proper um, proper nutrition to good food, to good housing and so forth, let alone antibiotics and access to healthcare. If we're talking about um, marginalized communities, people who are politically marginalized, um, communities of color in the United States, um, women have different access to healthcare. So I think our sense of this as being something that is, that is, that our sense of a, of a, of an infectious disease that kills people that we can't do anything about um, and that being something that is really f- scary for people, that's true for the majority of the population. But um, but we have seen, for instance, resurgences of of multidrug resistant tuberculosis in um, in in impoverished communities um, in the United States. We saw very very dramatically different rates of HIV transmission and treatment um, depending on on who you were and where you lived in the United States in the past decades. And so so I think um, we have to kind of keep our feet on the ground a little bit here and remember that infectious diseases aren't the majority of deaths that we see in the United States, but they're still happening and we can still do something to prevent them. Um, You mentioned a few minutes ago uh, the importance of international organizations that are, you know, that address these kinds of problems. I mean, the most obvious of course, is the world health organization. I wonder if you could talk about, a little bit more about the significance of the development of such organizations and the role that they have played in uh, disease suppression and uh, control of the epidemics and this sort of thing, and you know how you see the future of the organization under current circumstances. Hmm. That's a great question. Um, it's a big question, <laughs> and I, I think that. Um, so certainly one of the key differences from 1918, 1919 to the present is, as I said, the advent of, of international health organizations that play a major role in coordinating um, activity globally. Um, the League of Nations Health Organization was really the, the first one in the post-1918, 1919 world. Um, but it was hamstrung um, by its own powers of enforcement, by um, you know the membership and support of the League of Nations by different nations globally. And it wasn't really until after the Second World War that the lessons of the League of Nations, as well as those of, of other um, of other kind of currents in international health, were brought to bear with the WHO. And when I say currents in international health, I mean that um, that the the WHO really took as its mandate in the in the, the post war years, the post World War II years, not only dealing with infectious diseases 
not only dealing with with sort of broad global communicable diseases, but also attending to um, what what uh, thinkers in the 1920s and 30s would have referred to as social medicine. So taking into account social and economic determinants of health, thinking about um, about nutrition, about access to care, um, about access to medicine, and and so forth. And so um, so we see that that change with the WHO. Now the WHO very very rapidly really becomes highly invested in. Um, in dealing with infectious diseases. So um, eradication campaigns that begin in the 1950s and continue through the 1970s focus on malaria um, eradication, which was a disease that was not eradicated, but um, where there were some significant gains and lessons learned um, and significant failures and missteps as well. And then smallpox, so taking on smallpox eradication in the 1960s, really in earnest, and then um, successfully eradicating the disease in, in 7980. So, um, so when we think about what the WHO is, has been, you know, the sort of hallmark achievements of the WHO in that post-war era, many of them do focus around infectious disease. But, um, and, and I would say from those experiences of, of trying to address infectious diseases, whether that's um, novel outbreaks of, of disease or, um, or diseases that are known to be endemic globally, um, there have been different kinds of coordinated co- coordination strategies. So one of the things that's improved, I think, over time is the is the kind of shift from uh, top down and very hierarchical approaches to health programs, which is one of the things that we saw with the malaria eradication program, um, to more um, more effective collaboration with National Ministry of Health partners and with um, with a greater attention to community engagement. You know, you can't just show up and say, we're going to eradicate this disease for you. That's not your priority, but it's our priority and expect things to go well. <laughs> we know that they don't always go well. So, um, so those are, those are some lessons that have been important lessons from the WHO's experience. At the same time, we also have, um, since the, since World War II, really improved surveillance, um, networks and improved, um, coordination, at an international level around particular diseases. Influenza surveillance is one of the is one of the ones that is really robust. So there's a global influenza surveillance network um, that that coordinates um, national country data and looks at strains and works on vaccine development. You know, it has really learned over the years, that network and the WHO policy and international policy rather has really learned over the years how to do that um, better and better. They've had some challenges around equity and vaccine development that I think they've learned from. Um, so that's another element in which um, in which we see some some shifts. One of the things I think that has also been an interesting uh, moment for the WHO, which is of course also thinking about non-communicable diseases and thinking about um, about uh, environmental health and and a lot of different factors, is sort of how the institution and its partners respond to different crises. So um, one of the things that we saw in 2002-2003 with SARS, for instance, was that um, relations with the WHO and member nations around coordination and reporting um, really were in need of improvement, right? There were some, there were some significant speed bumps in that, in that experience um, in terms of how the Chinese government engaged with the WHO, how the Canadian government engaged with the WHO when SARS got to Toronto, and so forth. Um, 
that led directly to a new set of international health regulations and a revision of international health regulations. Um, likewise, with Ebola in, um, in outbreaks of Ebola virus disease in 2014-2015, really catalyzed a conversation around um, emergency funds. Right? So how, does the, how can the WHO assist in circumstances of true emergency with an emergent problem um, for member nations? Um, and how can international energies be brought to bear to to help? And that's one of the reasons why this new idea, this relatively new um, uh, device, the public health emergency of international concern, which um, which comes into into being after SARS and is used several times in the meantime, is an important determination for the global community. Right? It it, it mobilizes different expertise. It mobilizes new kinds of energies and so forth. So I would say in the long arc, one of the things that we've seen change over time with the WHO that really puts us in the position where we, we find ourselves today is um, still vexed relationships between the WHO and member nations, but generally uh, a sense of responsibility um, from, um, from the WHO as a global institution for doing that work of coordinating, of collecting data, of knowing what diseases are where, of, of working and trying to enable partnerships between, between different areas and to, um, and to develop international, an international regulatory system that, um, that at least is in its suggestions going to, to assist. Now, whether member nations um, take those suggestions is another matter entirely. Interesting. Uh, I wonder, you know, against that background, you know, how you see us coming out of the current situation. I mean, against the background of the epidemics that you've discussed from the past, I mean, how, how do you, you know, there's a lot of talk now. We seem to be in a phase you know, beyond the concern about flattening the curve so that mm-hmm. the uh, healthcare systems of affected countries are not overwhelmed. And now all the discussion is about how, when to re, I mean, it's not really so much when, I think, is how to reopen, you know, safely without igniting mm-hmm. a, a, a second wave and uh, putting us all back into lockdown and, and uh, you know, reversing the gains that we've made in the past. Um, so I wonder if you could talk about, you know, how these other situate, how did the, uh, H1N1 flu pandemic of 1918-19, how did that wind down? Was it over in 1919 or 1920? I mean, what's the Mm. timing of, how should we think about the timing of these things? Well, so one of the things that's, and this is, so this is a moment where we really are, I think, in uncharted territory and, and this is something that's uncomfortable to be in uncharted territory, to be in, you know, week X of a novel global pandemic, because the, 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 the COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, the, the causative pathogen in COVID-19 is different than, um, in, than a seasonal influenza or an, a pandemic influenza. And it's different because, um, so in 1918, 1919, there were three waves of, uh, of infection that um, scientists are not exactly sure because we don't have samples of those viruses um, that we know are from the first, second, and third waves. We're not exactly sure what happened to make the the waves have such different impact. So the first wave was um, significant. The second wave um, mortality was was dramatic, um, was really devastating. The third wave was less dramatic. 
Um, but influenzas are seasonal. They circulate seasonally globally. And um, they also mutate in a different way, in a very distinctive way as viruses go. So um, what we probably would say sort of brought the, the 1918, 1919 pandemic to a close had a lot to do with influenza. Right. It had to do with social distancing. It had to do with measures imposed, but it also had to do with the nature of the influenza virus. You know, we had gotten to a point where um, where exposure and susceptibility were were balanced out in a in a particular way, and we just weren't going to see those sort of virulence in in infections. Um, that's not what we're going to be dealing with with coronavirus. Um, and so, I think one of the important lessons. Is to is to be careful not to analogize too closely with this significant respiratory epidemic in the past, because the um, the things that have allowed us that sort of what what shifted in 1918, 1919, and then what allowed us to to manage um, influenza outbreaks in more recent years um, are not the kinds of things that are are going to to shift our future with coronavirus, in my opinion. From, from what we see with the historical record. Um, a better analogy in some ways might be the time period of epidemics of polio in the 1940s and 1950s um, until the point at which we had uh, a vaccine. Um, now, people who are alive in that time period um, talk about the, the sort of dramatic fear that people felt and, and being out and about and closing of, of schools and closing of swimming pools over the summer. Um, but, um, but I think we have to think about uh, a different kind of horizon. So the natural history of these coronaviruses and of this coronavirus in particular is different than SARS. It's different than MERS. And it's very different than influenza's. Um, so I think in terms of our horizon and what we're headed for, um, uh, and this is where I'm speaking both as a historian and a person who's living through this moment with everybody else, um, we have a lot of unknowns about this disease, right? So, uh, so remembering how early we are relatively, even though the best minds that we have globally are throwing everything they've got at it, we have a lot to learn about immunity. We have a lot to learn about treatment. Um, we have a lot to learn about our case fatality rates. Um, initially, I was really concerned as we were watching this play out because there were all these wide-ranging estimates of mortality based on um, on sort of how many people we know had the disease um, and how many people we know had died of the disease. And for a while, I said, you know, we just don't know our denominator. We don't know how many people are sick with this virus and how many of those people that are sick are dying. It's become abundantly clear that we don't know our numerator either. We have excess deaths in the, in the tens of thousands um, in this time period when we've seen coronavirus, and we, we don't actually know how many people are dying of this disease because we're not testing as robustly globally consistently, and we also have people who are probably dying at home of COVID and not being counted as COVID deaths. So I think... Um, I think the way forward is going to require an enormous amount of patience. <laughs> and I think we're going to have to make really, um, really deliberate and careful decisions about, um, about what happens when cases do spike again, right? So what, the thing that you mentioned, John, about, about worrying about the second wave, a second wave. 
Um, you know, the waves that we've seen of this virus have been really, um, really heterogeneous in the United States in terms of impact. Some are faster, some are slower, some respond differently. Um, and I think we have to understand that as this plays out, we're not going to see one single second wave, right? And we're going to see different kinds of pressures that are more long-term pressures on healthcare systems. So it's going to take a lot of patience and a really deliberate approach that also, as um, I think is important, that also involves thinking about what comes next, right? So those of us in higher education right now are thinking about the fall semester and thinking about the spring. Um, but kind of implicit in all of that is, uh, well, so what's our response if we do see a spike in cases? you know, how do we stay organized about that? How do we keep everybody safe in, in such case? So that, I don't have an easy answer um, for how we will learn from the past about this particular situation, because this is, this is one aspect um, in terms of the, the well, lack of a vaccine, um, uh, lack of clarity about treatments, um, and then the, the question of, of what happens with people's immunity as, as they survive it. We don't know enough yet. Well, that's uh, a, a concerning uh, but fascinating perspective on the situation in which we find ourselves and, you know, does speak to the question of how unprecedented the current situation is. It's unprecedented if in, in no other way in the sense that we simply don't know a lot about this particular virus at this point. And we're really going to have to train all our ingenuity on figuring out you know, how is it really transmitted? Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. what kinds of symptoms does it lead to? What kinds of long-term uh, damage to people does it lead to? And, um, and that's something, I think that's a really important point. Um, and again, we're all hungry for information. We're hungry for answers right now. We want to know when our lives are going to be back to whatever we would consider normal to have been. Um, but uh, again, one of the things that we're we're seeing, and that I think um, physicians are concerned about, is what happens to people after this virus burns through them. Those that survive, um, what kind of supportive care are they going to need in, as they get as they go forward? Those that have had serious disease, and and again, this is where we just have to remember that this is new. It's really new, and it's really complicated, <laughs> and and uh, and that that doesn't mean that we're going to be in lockdown in perpetuity, you know, not not by any stretch. But it means we just have to to really make sure that we're coordinating and and taking in the best of the available data at the time um, that we can in order to make decisions. You know, we're not going to be able to wait until we know everything in order to make decisions. That's not a viable option either. But I think we can we can. Uh, at, certainly at municipal and state levels, um, and hopefully at the federal level in the United States, as, as has happened elsewhere, we can see um, we can see efforts to to work on the best available peer reviewed um, trial uh, trial tested um, information at the time in order to make those policy decisions. I mean, your comments remind me of the sort of importance for people of understanding in a way how science works. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, many people have made the argument uh, that, you know, one of the real winners in this situation has been science uh, because where science is calling the shots, um, 
better decisions are made, perhaps not perfect decisions, but it, you know, it all has to do in a way with the fact that scientists often don't know. And I think many people outside the scientific community uh, are looking for, you know, hard and fast answers. And mm-hmm. those are often simply not, you know, available, or at least not available yet. Um, and as you say, we have to kind of make decisions on the basis of, you know, our best understanding, our best information right now. So, uh, so do you see it that way? I mean, I see this in certain ways as a real kind of, uh, you know, plus or a real kind mm-hmm. of uh, moment of uh, uh, importance for science. Yeah, I think that um, I absolutely agree. Yeah, I think that um, one of the things that is uh, a, a really amazing benefit of this weird situation that we find ourselves in is, I think, an increase in scientific literacy and in public health literacy for um, for for populations globally in terms of of respiratory infections and hand hygiene and so forth. You know, people are are thinking about hand washing in a different way, and so that sort of um, public awareness is good. But I think the other thing to to that is a difficult thing to to kind of get a hold of is that even though we have um, general recommendations about um, about measures that we can take to um, to slow down the transmission of this particular disease um, there are still um, really fine details that are important for our future that are being worked out still right and that and the other thing that I think is so so this is to say that we see, questions about treatment, you know, there's this desire to have different treatments and to be able to just, you know, figure out an experimental drug and to, and to make that work for people. Well, you have to have a treatment that's going to be appropriate to set a standard of care for every patient who comes through the door with that disease so that every doctor who is treating every patient can do the same thing and have some sense of certainty about the outcomes. That's an enormously complicated problem, right, on the one hand. And I think people have to to sort of understand how these sorts of things take shape over time. There's a reason that it takes years or can take years for drugs to, to become widely available to a general population. They sometimes move faster, but most of the time they don't. The other thing that I think is is really interesting about understanding how scientists do their work is, is the sort of complexity of epidemiology as a field, right? So what does it mean to have one model that's based on something versus another model based on, on something else? And why do they have different outcomes? What does it mean to have a range that, that goes from 60,000 to 120,000? That's a big range, right? And so I think that... Um, I think that's also a really important um, aspect of this is is the familiarity that many people have with this the kind of fundamentals of modern public health now, but also um, uh, I think there's an importance in really grappling with the the difficulties and complexities of the kinds of of science and and scientific and medical research that we're seeing as as really necessary here. So. Um, and this is another thing where patience is really difficult. But um, if we've seen anything, it's been that working with preprint papers or papers that are sort of being rushed out to the public or kind of following news, scientific news, um, riz people's hopes, um, catalyzes particular kinds of activity that may not be helpful um, or, or useful for the greater public good. And, you know, and then we draw those back or, or shift those. Um, so I think that's that's one situation where we have to have a great deal of patience also. 
Well, this has been a fascinating discussion about uh, the coronavirus situation and how to look at it in a historical perspective. Um, that's it for today's episode of International Horizons. I want to thank Professor Mary Wabel of the University of Pittsburgh for giving us her historical perspective on the pandemic. I also want to thank Christo Voinoff for helping on the technological side. This is John Torpy of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies saying see you next time on International Horizons. <laughs>